May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Please be seated. So this is actually my third time living in Austin. Rachel and I have been here twice before, and the first time I lived in Austin, I was a school teacher at a private Christian school in North Austin called Brentwood Christian. That was back when I was still a member of the Churches of Christ. Uh, and I taught Bible there. I taught Bible to eighth graders. And there was one day where we came to this story that is our gospel reading today. And one thing I loved about teaching eighth graders is eighth graders don't know they're not supposed to say stuff. And so one of my students raised her hand after we'd read the text that we were going to discuss, and she said, Mr. Smith, I don't think Jesus is very Christian in this story. <laughs> and she is not alone. I once heard of a Sunday school class where folks were asked, what is the thing in the Gospels you find hardest to believe? The virgin birth? Miraculous healings? The resurrection? Nope. Jesus turning over tables in the temple. It was difficult for people to see Jesus as someone who could be angry. Or at least it used to be. If you're paying attention lately, an increasing number of folks think angry is all Jesus ever is. <laughs> Their Jesus is a warrior who's going to destroy the world. Or if they do believe there's a gentler side to Jesus found in the Gospels, they find it lacking. It can't really get things done. No more turn the other cheek, blessed are the meek Jesus. This love your enemies stuff just sounds like a way to lose. So which is it? Is Jesus too angry or not angry enough? Is it okay for followers of Jesus to be angry, and if so, why, and how, and when? The first thing that I think is vital to note, this is a big thing, my sermon sort of hinges on it, is that where Jesus is when he starts throwing tables around. He's in the temple. And how does Jesus refer to the temple? My father's house. Which, if you have even a basic understanding of how relationships work, especially within the Trinity, is another way of saying my house. When I was growing up, my father's house was also my house. We lived in the same house. If my parents still lived in that house, I might still think of it as my house. When my son comes home, he thinks of my house as his house. So it makes sense that Jesus would make himself at home in his father's house. And that if he sees something that is not right, he would feel free to rearrange the furniture. Now, why is this such an important thing to note? Because I want you to know when Jesus doesn't do this. Jesus doesn't do this in the house of Mary and Martha. He doesn't do this in the house of Zacchaeus. He doesn't do it in the house of tax collectors and sinners. He doesn't walk into their houses and start throwing tables around. 
He doesn't walk into their house and throw his weight around. He saves that for when he's at home. So why is our impulse so often the exact opposite? Why do we tend our table turning outwards rather than inwards? Why are we so unwilling to take ourselves to task, to take the church to task, but so quick to speak a hard or even harsh word when it comes to the world? Why is our anger and judgment and correction focused in one direction? When I was first starting in ministry, two of the big talking points in the late 90s that everyone at church wanted me preaching about were the importance of having the Ten Commandments in public school classrooms and prayer in public schools. Now, I'm not going to get into a big debate about all that, but my question at the time was always the same. If you want the Ten Commandments up in classrooms, are they already up in your living room? If you want your kids praying in schools, are you praying with them before school? In other words, why do we keep expecting the world to be more like the church while also allowing the church to be more like the world? God's discipline is most often directed at God's people. And we see this all through the Bible. Time and again, prophets preach judgment on Israel. And why? Because they are God's people. They are God's children. They are the ones he expects more of. And it's not that God never delivers a word of warning or judgment to the world. It's simply that a particular discipline and correction is reserved for his people, his children, those he has called to follow him. And the same is true for the Son of God. It's not that Jesus ignores the sin of outsiders, but he has a particular word, sometimes a hard word, for insiders. It's inside the temple that his anger comes out. It's inside the temple that he upends things. And this is a good thing. This is good news. Because the scripture tells us that the Lord disciplines those he loves. When we are in Christ, Christ is also in us. We become temples of the Holy Spirit. We invite Jesus in to make himself at home, to upend our lives as often as necessary. Well, you ask, why wouldn't we want that for others as well then, Kester? I thought you just told us it was good to have our lives upended. Why wouldn't I want that for my enemy too? And to that I would say this. I anticipated that question. <laughs> First, it is Christ who will ultimately upend our lives. We don't have to do it for him. And when he does it, it will always come from a place of love. Always. Our problem is that we don't let Christ be the one to turn things over. And that far too often we don't follow his lead of love. Let's go back to the Ten Commandments for a minute. Years ago, I taught an Old Testament overview course to college sophomores in West Texas. And when we would get to Exodus 20, I always asked my students the same thing. How did the Ten Commandments begin? To which Johnny on the spot, front row Joe, would always immediately and excitedly answer, 
You shall have no other gods before me. And I would say, nope. <laughs> Which would unsettle Front Row Joe, but suddenly capture the attention of my less engaged students. And they were like, well, maybe I could risk being wrong. And so they'd raise their hands. No idols. Nope. Name in vain. Nope. Don't murder. Nope. And inevitably, someone would finally see it. How do the Ten Commandments begin? I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt and the house of slavery. You see, before God makes the rules, he establishes the relationship. In fact, the rules only make sense in light of the relationship. These Ten Commandments are simply a more specific breakdown of the big two. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. If we do not lead with love, the correction is simply condemnation. And Christ did not come to condemn the world, but to save it. Amen. So what does this mean for us and for our anger? Does it mean we can't stand up against injustice? Does it mean we can't speak the truth? Of course not. But it does mean that our fight against injustice must begin in God's love. It does mean that when we speak the truth, we must speak the truth in love. Otherwise, we will forget that our fight is with principalities and powers and start to believe that our fight is with flesh and blood, with neighbors, with friends, with family. We cannot get angry with others for breaking the rules if we haven't first established relationship. We can't expect the world to start living Christianly if we haven't bothered to introduce them to the love of Christ. Of course the world isn't living Christianly. They aren't Christians. And they won't ever be if the only Christians they ever meet are angry. The psalmist writes that the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes, reviving the soul. Is that how it sounds when we lay down the law? Shouldn't it be? Paul writes in Romans that the law is good, but only in that it ultimately leads to God. Is that our intent when we lay down the law, when we speak the truth? And if it's not, shouldn't it be? I'm not saying that making friends with Jesus is going to make you friends. Taking sides with Jesus can get you in trouble. And Jesus himself says, if you follow me, people aren't going to like it. And if the reason people don't like you is because of Jesus, so be it. My problem is when the peop reason people don't like Jesus is because of you. Is because of me. If we cannot speak the truth in love. I'm going to go so far as to say we should not speak it because it is not true. If we do not love the people to whom we speak the truth, we should keep our mouths shut. 
can only open our mouths to ask God to help us love those people. Open our mouths to ask Jesus to upend us, to make himself at home in us, and turn our hearts of stone into hearts of flesh. Make no mistake, Jesus has come to upend our lives, to turn our hearts to him. But he does so for the same reason he upends tables in the temple, to set his people free. Christ has come to set us free, to give us life, to save us. He has come to do that for all of us, insider and outsider. He has come to welcome everyone in. And he does that by cleansing the temples and upending the lives of those who are his. And he does that by entering the homes and sitting at the tables of those who are not yet. If we want to follow in the footsteps of Jesus, we must follow his lead. We must allow our own lives to be upended, for our own tables to be turned over, for our own desire to be redirected toward God so that he might redirect our love towards what he loves. We must speak the truth to ourselves. We must fight injustice in the church as well as out. We must enter into the lives and homes and communities of those who don't know Jesus. Those we might even consider our enemies and be a good neighbor to them. We must gather around tables with them, not to upend them, but to invite them. To invite them to the greatest table ever set. Only then. Only when they receive the good news that Jesus brings will their lives be upended as our lives have been. As Mary and Martha's lives were upended. As Zacchaeus' life was upended. As the lives of the tax collectors and prostitutes and all manner of sinners were upended. Sinners like you and me. Not by a Jesus who has come to condemn them, but by one who has come to save them because he loves them. In just a few minutes, as we come to this table, the best table, to Christ's table, let us come ready to have this table turn over our entire lives. Come ready to receive Jesus so that he might make himself at home in us and be God with us. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.